Hi, I'm Moshe Zeldman. Welcome to Schmoozing. We live in times of unprecedented change and confusion. The rise of cancel culture, the promises and the threats of artificial intelligence, identity politics. We live in a society where people are more digitally connected but are feeling lonelier than ever, and we're in a world that seems to be edging towards World War III. I believe that Judaism can shed light on all these issues. Schmoozing is more than a podcast. It's a community of thoughtful voices on today's important topics. I invite you to explore with me how Judaism can help us deepen our understanding of the times we live in, confront the challenges we face, and bring some light into this world. Welcome to episode 13 of Schmoozing. Yes, it has been a while. I've been experimenting with a new format. It took a little while to figure out the technicalities of it. And we've got video now, so you'll be able to find us soon on YouTube. What we're going to try and do is take on some of the thought leaders that you find in the world today, look at their views of the world, their views of God, life, morality, purpose, where humanity is heading, and try and unpeel their ideas and see how solid they are. Today, we're going to take on Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, probably the world's most famous scientist today. He's an astrophysicist. He studied at Harvard and at Princeton. And what's interesting is if you look on YouTube, you'll find lots of videos of him talking about as an astrophysicist, talking about the cosmos, galaxies, stars, formations, asteroids coming towards the Earth. Um, he's got a fascinating video on why the sky is blue. He's got some interesting things to say about the possibility of life on other planets. But what's interesting is he also talks about things like climate change, which isn't really his specialty. And he has videos where he talks about the afterlife or whether or not there's a god or what the meaning and purpose of life is, which is really not his field. This is a classical logical fallacy that's called appeal to authority. Because somebody is an authority in one area of life, we assume it spills over to them knowing about other areas of life. Being an astrophysicist does not qualify you to make any statements in philosophy any more than anybody else who's read other books on philosophy. It doesn't qualify you to talk about religion, and it certainly doesn't qualify you to talk about Judaism. So let's have a look at our first clip with Dr. Tyson. I have no problems if, as we probe the origins of things, we bump up into the bearded man. If that shows up, we're good to go, okay? Not a problem. There's just no evidence of it. And this is why religions are called faiths, collectively. Because you believe something in the absence of evidence. That's what it is. That's why it's called faith. Otherwise, we would call all religions evidence, but we don't for exactly that reason. Here, I can't blame Dr. Tyson for thinking the way he does about religion because religions are usually a matter of faith. But as I think we've talked about in previous episodes, in Judaism, the word faith doesn't exist. Faith, the idea of accepting something as true because you're just supposed to, because you hope it's true, because you were raised to think it's true, is just not a Jewish idea. The word doesn't exist in the Hebrew language. As a matter of fact, Maimonides, in his writings where he discusses and defines what it means to believe in God, his book is called Sefer Mada, the book of science. Maimonides was a scientist, and he believed that you can approach the question of whether or not there's a God with the same criteria of science and logic that you do to other fields of understanding the reality that we live in. Let's go to video number two. So what people are really after is what is my stance on religion or spirituality or God? And I would, and I would say if I had to find a word that came closest, it would be agnostic. 
agnostic. A word dates from the 19th century, uh, Huxley, to refer to someone who, who doesn't know but is, hasn't yet really seen evidence for it, but is prepared to embrace the evidence if it's there, but if it's not, it won't be forced to have to think something that is not otherwise supported. And some will say, well, that's, you're not being fair to the fact that they're actually the same thing. No, they're not the same thing, and I'll tell you why. Atheists I know who proudly wear the badge are active atheists. They're like in-your-face atheists, and they want to change policies, and they're, they're, they're having debates. I don't have the time, the interest, the energy to do any of that. Here he's making another mistake. The philosophical definition of an agnostic is not somebody that's not sure if there's a God. It's not somebody who's either politically active as an atheist or politically active as a believer. An agnostic is defined as somebody who says there is no way to know if God exists or not. That's the philosophical definition of an agnostic. Aside from that, there's a bigger problem, which is that it's very easy to be an agnostic in your mind. In the world of theory, there's always three possibilities. There is a God, there isn't a God, maybe there's a God. But when it comes to the world of action, it always comes down to two choices. Either you're going to live your life guided by the belief that there is a God, or you're going to live your life without that belief. There's no such thing as being an agnostic in practice. So when you say, do you believe in God, is there, is it, which God? Is it Zeus? Is it Poseidon? Is it the, the Jewish God? Is it the Christian God? Because the Jewish God from the Old Testament is filled with wrath, okay? All right, and, and smoting and smiting and whatever the, the, the past tense verb is. And so, to, and the New Testament, the, God is kinder, all right? A little nicer, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all right. So you look at all of this and you say, is that the God you want me to comment on? Or is there some other God? Typically, it's the Judeo-Christian blend there. In that context, I would say in my studies of the universe, I, I value evidence and I don't see evidence for any kind of um, active intelligence or power over anything. And this was my letter, as it appeared in the New York Times. People cited violation of the First Amendment when a New Jersey, that's a separation of church and state, essentially. New Jersey school teacher asserted that evolution and the Big Bang are not scientific and that Noah's Ark carried dinosaurs. The case is not about the need to separate church and state. It's about the need to separate ignorant, scientifically illiterate people from the ranks of teachers. That's the problem. Here we get to the crux of where Neil deGrasse Tyson is making a huge mistake. When he says, I don't see evidence in science for God, you're using the wrong tool. You can't use science, which is there to measure and understand the physical universe, to answer the question, where did the physical universe come from? Matter doesn't create itself. If there was a big bang, if there was a beginning and something began it, that thing that began it can't just be another physical thing. Because then you're stuck with the question, so where did that one come from? The whole idea of God is a non-physical cause of a physical universe. So when he says, I don't see evidence for God, he reminds me of the first man ever in outer space, the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. He was blasted to outer space. He was in the Russian space program. He spent days circling the earth, came back down, and it was the first time a human being had been in outer space. 
came down, took him a couple of days to decompress. He got healthy. They put him in front of an international set of TV cameras, and somebody asked him the question, what did you see in outer space? His answer was, I didn't see God. <laughs> if you expect to see God, then you clearly don't know what God is. If you expect that the tools of science and physics and biology are going to tell you about where science and physics and biology came from, you're using the wrong tool. And yes, it's true. Religious people that are scientifically ignorant should not be weighing in on this question. But guess what? Scientists who are religiously ignorant shouldn't be weighing in on this question either. When we're looking at how religion views the world and how science views the world, if you're not qualified in both, you really have no way of bridging the gap between the two. I happen to know many religious scientists. They are deeply immersed in their Torah studies. They are deeply immersed in their understandings of science. And all of them can explain quite coherently how there's no conflict between the two. If you're an expert in one realm and know nothing about the other, of course you're going to see contradictions. But the Jewish perspective would be God is the author of both there can't be a contradiction between the two. If it seems like there's a contradiction, it's either you don't really understand the science or you don't really understand the book. Be a master chef who can look at a piece of cake and tell you exactly the ingredients and at what temperature it was baked and how the sugar was combined with the egg, combined with the flour, combined with the chocolate and what kind of recipe was followed and what kind of chocolate it is. But no matter how much you're an expert in the cake, none of that will tell you who made the cake. None of that will tell you why they made the cake. For that, you have to be able to go beyond the cake. So, for example, if you, if you knew nothing about science and you read, say, the Bible, the Old Testament, which in Genesis is an account of nature, that's, that's what that is, and I said to you, give me your description of the natural world based only on this. You would say the world was created in six days and that stars are just little points of light much lesser than the sun. In fact, they can fall out of the sky, right? Because that's what happens during, during the um, revelation. One of the signs that yeah. the second coming is that the stars will fall out of the sky and land on earth. So it's even right that means you don't know what those things are. You have no concept of what the actual universe is. So everybody who tried to make proclamations about the physical universe based on Bible passages, got the wrong answer. <laughs> Sorry, Neil, you got this one wrong again. The Bible is not there to give us a description of the physical world. The physical world, we can figure out for ourselves. I don't need the Bible to tell me about penguins or giraffes or even dinosaurs, because those are things I can understand for myself just by observing the physical universe. The Torah is there to give us a deeper understanding, not of the what of creation, of the why of creation why we're here. Why would the Torah bother to tell me about Adam and Eve, or Cain and Abel, or Noah, or the flood? It's not giving me a history lesson. I don't need a history lesson about some guy that killed his brother. What it's there to teach me is a moral understanding of my responsibility in the world, my responsibility to humanity, the purpose of life, which are all questions science can't answer. Science is there to tell us the what. That's what physics and biology and chemistry and astrophysics do very well. Religion, Judaism, is there to tell me the why.
In this coming video, Dr. Tyson is going to talk about what percentage of scientists believe in God. Turns out if you go to college and get an advanced degree, a master's or a doctorate, where these are degrees where you actually question the state of existing knowledge. The undergraduate degree doesn't really do that. You're learning from textbooks that are written by somebody else. Your doctrines are already there. The higher degrees imply that you are questioning the very fabric of the knowledge you had previously learned. Among that community, it's 60%. It has dropped. Well, that's interesting. Let's keep going. How about scientists of all stripes? So a biologist, chemist, sorry, let's include engineers as well. People who have formal scientific training, mathematicians as well. Okay, what, what happens next? Drops to 40%. Now, if you look at this number, it looks like, wow, so scientists, the public is 90%, scientists are 40%. No, the drop is not that significant because every scientist has, a, has an advanced degree. So in fact, the drop is not from 90 to 40, the drop is from 60 to 40. So becoming a scientist is not as big an effect on whether you're religious as you might otherwise think. Most of the drop comes because you're educated, educated beyond the level of college. So that's 40%. So now you go to elite scientists, members of the National Academy, highly accomplished subset among scientists, the number drops to 7%. There was a headline in Nature the British journal Nature, which said after this study was released, 93% of elite scientists reject God. So that was supposed to be a shocking headline. And I look at that and I said, that's not even interesting. That was the trend line anyway. What's more interesting, which was not the headline, is that 7% of elite scientists pray to a God. Isn't, isn't that a more interesting fact to you? Isn't that kind of interesting? The most accomplished scientists in the world, in that community, 7% of them still pray to a personal God. I think that is deserving of more study than the 93% who don't. Because something's going on there. We don't know what. So then Dr. Tyson is surprised that there are 7% of scientists, of top-level scientists, that believe in God, that are religious. He says, something's going on here. We don't know what. I know what's going on here. These are my friends. I have a friend who's a nuclear physicist. I have a friend who's a mathematician. I have friends who are biochemical engineers. These are the 7% of people that have mastered the world of science and also mastered the world of religion. They understand both. They don't see it as a contradiction at all, and they can maintain belief in both of them together. Dr. Tyson, I'd be happy to make the introduction. And I've met people who have made mistakes on both sides. I've definitely met scientists who know nothing about the Bible. They've not studied it. They've read maybe a basic English translation of it, but have no idea of the depths of what the text actually means. I've definitely met religious people, Jewish and otherwise, who have no level... I've definitely met religious people, Jewish and otherwise, who have no understanding of science. And for them, it's easy to say, dinosaurs never existed. The earth has been around only for a few thousand years. 
it's easy to say it when you don't know science. Just like it's easy for a scientist to say the Bible is silly when you don't understand how to read the Torah, how to read the Bible. We also have to remember that while it may be true in the world of Christian apologetics, that often they would, in the face of modern scientific findings, be forced to go back and, re and reinterpret the text of the New Testament or the Old Testament. But in Judaism, there are writings from rabbis going back thousands of years, well before any modern scientific discoveries. When the world did believe that the earth was a few thousand years old, there were rabbis at the time that said not to take the story of creation literally. It's telling you a deeper lesson. The reality is you can't talk about an earth being six days old if the sun isn't created until the fourth day. What was day one, day two, and day three without a sun? So clearly, the, so the rabbis understood right away this is not a description of physical reality. And there are oral traditions that we have that tell us how to understand the world really could be millions or billions of years old. And we're not saying it because we're apologizing for modern scientific findings. Now, philosophers basically invented atheism. And if you do this, if you check the statistic for philosophers, it's down, it's below 1%. There are no religious, the only religious philosophers there are, they're like theologian philosophers, right? If you subtract the theologic philosophers, this number is essentially zero, all right? So they're basically birthed atheism, uh, the philosophers. Okay, this point made no sense to me at all. None of the philosophers deal with God except for the theologians. <laughs> Theology is a field within philosophy. There's many theologians that spend their time as philosophers discussing and understanding the question of God. It's almost like saying at the Super Bowl, aside from the Patriots fans, nobody was rooting for the Patriots. The history of discovery, particularly cosmic discovery, but discovery in general, scientific discovery, is one where at any given moment there's a frontier. And there tends to be an urge for people, especially religious people, to assert that across that boundary into the unknown lies the handiwork of God. This shows up a lot. Newton even said it. He had his laws of gravity and motion, and he was explaining the moon and the planet. He was there. He doesn't mention God for any of that. And then he gets to the limits of what his equations can calculate. So I don't, can't quite figure this out. Maybe God steps in and makes it right every now and then. That's, that's where he invoked God. And, and Ptolemy, he, he, he bet on the wrong horse, but he was a brilliant guy. He formulated the geocentric universe with Earth in the middle. This is where we got epicycles and all these, right. all this, the machinations of the heavens. There was still a mystery to him. He, he looked up and uttered the following words. I, when I trace at my pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies. These are the planets going through retrograde and back. The mysteries of the earth. When I trace at my pleasure the windings to and fro of the heavenly bodies, I no longer touch earth with my feet. I stand in the presence of Zeus himself and take my fill of ambrosia. What he did was invoke, he didn't invoke Zeus to account for the rock that he's standing on or the air he's breathing. It was this point of mystery and in gets invoked God. This over time has been described by philosophers as the God of the gaps. If, if that's how you, if that's where you're gonna put your God in this world, 
then God is an ever-receding pocket of scientific ignorance. If that's how you're going to invoke God, if God is the mystery of the universe, these mysteries, we're, t we're tackling these mysteries one by one. If you're going to stay religious at the end of the conversation, God has to be more to you than just where science has yet to tread. I will never be one to tell you what you should believe or what you should not believe. What I will say is that if you want to say that where we don't understand things, that's where God rests, that's where God operates, the God of the gaps argument, because I get asked that all the time. What was around before the universe? I don't know. Must have been something, God. So they got to stick in God where we're not there yet. And I just say, well, I got, we got top people working on that. That's, it's a current frontier. We're not there yet. And given the history of the moving frontier, where people had previously said, well, God must be operating, we're long past that. We, those explanations have come. And so I, I don't, there's no compelling reason to say God did it and then sort of give up and go on to the next problem. So now Dr. Tyson gets to the classic argument of God of the gaps. Just because there's things we don't understand about the universe doesn't mean it came from God. And in the past, we used to believe God was responsible for lightning and for thunder and for electromagnetism and for gravity. And the more science pushes and makes sense of these things, the less you need God as the explanation. So what's God of the gaps? You believe in God only in the areas where you haven't yet found an actual scientific explanation. I don't believe in God of the gaps. My God is not a God of the gaps for two reasons. Number one, no matter how much you look under a microscope or through a telescope or whatever laws you find that govern the universe, whatever forces of nature you discover that explain how this universe functions, none of it will tell you about the meaning of life. None of it will tell you about the purpose of life. That will never be found under a microscope. There's no formula that tells you what the purpose of life is. And the second is that all of science is based on the idea of cause and effect. Everything comes from something. The entire universe, as we understand it, according to the basic laws of science, follows a system of cause and effect. Everything comes from something. You see a chair made out of wood, you know it comes from a tree. That tree, we know, came from a seed which came from a previous tree, which came from a seed, which came from a tree. Everything comes from something. So if according to science, there was a beginning, it means the universe is finite. It has an age. It's 13.8 billion years old. It has a size. It has a shape. It's expanding. It's growing in size as time goes on. So if the universe itself is finite, finite things need to have a cause. If there's a beginning, there must be a beginner. You can't say the universe created itself any more than saying a chair can create itself. If there's nothing there, from nothing, nothing comes. So this isn't about God of the gaps. If you ask a scientist what created that first particle that exploded and expanded and turned into the universe, where did it come from? They would say they don't know yet. But regardless, if you push them on the question and say, well, there's two possibilities. Either something infinite created it, which I call God, some infinite unlimited force beyond space and time created the beginning of space and time, or you'll say something finite created it. But if something finite created it, you're still stuck with the question, okay, so where did that finite thing come from? And what was before that? And what was before that? So it seems to be that the idea that infinite created finite is not just an explanation for the universe. It's not just the best explanation for the universe. It's the only possible explanation for the universe.
Do yeah. you believe in God? So in the West, there's two thirds of scientists pray to a personal God on the expectation it will intervene in their day's affairs. But I can tell you this, productive scientists do not bring their, their Bible, their scripture, their holy books into the lab because they do not mix there. So they draw a line in the sand mm -hmm. and they do one in one place, then they worship on the weekend, Saturday or Sunday, whatever is your, your religious tradition, there. So to ask whether they can coexist, the answer is yeah, is empirically yes. I didn't ask that, I asked do, you, do me, you believe in God? Every description of God that I've heard holds God to be uh, all powerful, very typical, and all good. And then I look around and I see a tsunami that killed a quarter million people in Indonesia, an earthquake that killed a quarter million people in Haiti. And I see earthquakes and tornadoes and disease, childhood leukemia. And I see all of this and I say, I do not see evidence of both of those being true simultaneously. If there is a God, the God is either not all powerful or not all good. Mm. Good answer. So, Dr. Tyson, with all due respect, you're a smart guy. And I understand you look at it as either God is not all powerful or God is not all good. Let me offer a third alternative. You are not all knowing. Yes, you're an astrophysicist. You know a lot about the mechanics of the universe. Do you claim to understand the mind of a being that's infinite? all-powerful beyond time and space? I think you would agree with me that if a kid in kindergarten walked into your class on astrophysics, they would not understand what in the world you're talking about because the gap between your mind and their mind is huge. Guess what? The gap between your mind and God's mind is huger. It's actually infinitely huge. So for us to claim that we can understand how God runs the world, if I was God, I wouldn't create hurricanes. If I was God, I wouldn't create kids with congenital birth defects. If I was God, we're not. The choice you have to make is to either live in a world where you claim to know everything, and therefore God isn't part of the picture, and therefore all suffering is meaningless, irrelevant, cruel, and unfair, or to choose to live in a world that says, I have evidence that there's a God. And I know that that God that I believe in is so much greater than me so much beyond time and space and understands the span of life and my previous life and afterlife and the purpose of how we all interact with each other and affect each other and help each other and that that's all part of a cosmic plan that I'm not privy to, but it actually has meaning, that's the world I would rather live in. There's a passage in the Bible which describes the shape of King Solomon's pond outside of his residence. And it says, it is round on all sides, 30 cubits around, 10 cubits across. Well, if you divide those two numbers, you get 3.0. That is the Bible's attempt to give you the value of pi, the ratio of the circumference of a circle to the diameter. Well, that's the wrong answer. Pi has actually some decimal values there. There were places that wanted to legislate the value of pi because of that value that had appeared in the Bible. Legis to be 3.0. These are people who don't understand mathematics in charge of legislation. This final one, I don't blame him for at all. He's looking at a King James Bible. He understands that there's a thing called a written scripture. He has no idea probably there's a thing called a oral law, an oral explanation handed down from Mount Sinai through the generations that explains the deeper meaning of the text. I don't expect him to know that. So I understand that from a literalist perspective, 
Solomon's pool makes no sense. If the diameter of the pool was 10 cubits, then there's no way the circumference should be 30. It should be 31.4159265, etc. But our rabbis pointed this out centuries ago. They pointed out something fascinating, that if you look at the Hebrew word for the circumference of the pool, the Hebrew word is kav. And the original Hebrew in the book of Kings, the book of Melachim, the word kav is written and pronounced in two different ways. It's written kuf vav. It's pronounced kuf vav hey. Why is that important? Because there's a system in Torah where we can understand the meaning of words by looking at their gematria, looking at the numerical values of the letters that make up the word. So interestingly, even though the word kav is written kuf vav, we have an oral tradition that says we're supposed to pronounce it kuf vav hey. We're supposed to add a letter. The original word kuf vav, the letters add up to the number 106. The rewriting of it, according to the oral law, with the hey at the end, turns it from 106 to 111. The ratio of 111 to 106, if you multiply that to get the circumference, to correct for the circumference, you end up getting that the actual circumference is 3.14150943. The actual decimal expansion of pi that we know today is 3.1415927. It's almost exactly the same. So to within five decimal points, the rabbis are pointing out how to tell us the actual value of pi of Solomon's pool. I don't expect Dr. Tyson to know that. I think if he studied a little Judaism, he would find it fascinating. Thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, and also leave feedback if you liked the content, and especially if you didn't. These are important conversations, so let's keep schmoozing.